Hello, and welcome to our COVID Minutes podcast series from UT Health San Antonio. Our goal is to bring you timely and concise insights and updates on COVID-19 by interviewing our UT Health faculty experts who are very involved in COVID response. These on-demand podcasts are aimed at healthcare professionals and are ideal for clinicians on the go and others who want to stay up to date. Today, we are back after a punishing winter surge that had all of us busy, and we're interviewing Dr. Phil Ponce, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the Lozano Long School of Medicine and Medical Director of Transplant Infectious Diseases at University Health. Dr. Ponce has been very involved in our COVID clinical trials, as well as heading up our COVID vaccine safety and efficacy work group here at UT Health San Antonio. Dr. Ponce, welcome. It's been a, yes, it's been a year now that we've been caring for our COVID patients, and we've come a long way in learning how to treat this disease. So, what would you say has been the biggest advance for treatment of COVID patients over the past year? I think even after a year of studies, the best treatment for COVID remains prevention. <laughs> One, not getting it at all. Um, I don't think we've seen anything in the treatment realm that compares to what we saw with the mRNA vaccine where they were 95% effective against uh, clinical disease and, and uh, you know, all of the vaccines are close to about 100% in terms of preventing hospitalizations or mortality. Um, we have seen a progressive decrease in the mortality of hospitalized patients, but I'm not sure how much of that is related to therapeutics versus just improved care where we're less inclined to put people on uh, ventilators if we don't have to, where um, we can support people with hypoxia better, where we have these methods like proning um, in addition to anticoagulation strategies to help prevent some of the complications. Um, after a year, we do have two widely used medications, remdesivir and antiviral, um, which has shown um, you know, that it, it decreases time to recovery um, and it may improve mortality in a subset of patients. We also have dexamethasone, which uh, thus far has been the only agent that seems to decrease mortality. Um, we have two promising agents that have uh, increasing data, tocilizumab, um, as well as baricitinib. But I, I just don't think we've seen anything like what we've seen on the prevention side of things. Yes. So uh, we've been very fortunate about those vaccines. What would you say has been the biggest surprise perhaps in uh, the, what we found for COVID care so far? I think the biggest surprise is uh, an agent that's still under investigation. Um, uh, you know, it, it's being developed for outpatient use, but that's fluvoxamine or Luvox. The, the whole story of the development, the data thus far is, is just, you know, really, really interesting. And, and I know you're not supposed to have any horses in the race, but I'm kind of rooting for, for flu box. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more in detail about it. But I think for me, you know, the fact that this 40-year-old SSRI uh, may be beneficial in preventing COVID is just, you know, uh, kind of astounding. Yes, yes, that is interesting. And we'll talk more about that later. What about the biggest disappointment? You know, something that you were really hoping would turn out to be uh, key, but that disappointed us. I think the biggest disappointment is the fact that antivirals in general just have a very limited role in, in COVID. 
Um, we have to use them very, very, very early on for them to have any benefit. Um, it seems like it seems more and more that the pathogenesis of uh, COVID-19 that leads to hospitalization and to severe illness is driven mostly by the inflammatory response. So, you know, we sunk a lot of time and effort into looking at various oral antivirals, uh, convalescent plasma, monoclonals for inpatient treatment, but, you know, we haven't seen a uh, a whole lot of, of benefit for all the investment in, in time and studies. You know, more and more, a lot of these antiviral agents seem like their role is going to be in outpatient outpatient treatment as opposed to inpatient treatment. Um, one uh, exception being remdesivir, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think that's you know we've learned a lot about the disease itself. So much of the uh, consequences and um, complications are due to inflammation, really, probably more than the uh, viral infection itself. That's right. So um, in our last podcast about treatment in November, the ACT-2 trial had been completed, but it had not yet been published. And that was a study evaluating baricitinib and, and remdesivir. Um, and now it's published. And so what did we learn in that study? And how do you recommend using baricitinib now? And what are its potential advantages? Sure. So uh, baricitinib is a Janus kinase inhibitor. So it acts upstream in preventing the elaboration of a lot of these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which seem to drive the pathogenesis of moderate, severe, and critical COVID-19. Um, so in ACT2, it was remdesivir versus the combination of remdesivir plus baricitinib. Um, and what the top line result was, was maybe not all that impressive. It, it uh, improved time to recovery by another day um, compared to the placebo group. Um, in the pre-specified subgroup analyses, however, especially for patients in ordinal six, um, these are the patients who were on high flow oxygen or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, um, it greatly decreased the time to recovery along the orders of about five days and also seemed to decrease mortality as well. Um, Based on the guidelines, you know, baricitinib still has, a, you know, a relatively limited role, at least at this point. Um, part of the issue is, you know, it, a lot of the benefit was found in these uh, pre-specified subgroup analyses, but subgroup analyses are subgroup analyses, and, you know, people always have reservations about them. So if you look at the official guidelines, Baricitinib should be considered in patients who, uh, for whatever reason, you cannot use dexamethasone in, um, and really in folks who are requiring supplemental oxygen or uh, high flow nasal cannula or non-invasive positive pre pressure ventilation, um, it shouldn't really be used in the um, the critical uh, folks with critical illness. Um, I think though, based on the data, it would be reasonable to think about doing the combination of remdesivir and baricitinib in those ordinal six people. Um, so high flow, uh, nasal cannula, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Because again, the findings in the subgroup analysis, granted they're in the subgroup analysis, were very, very robust. And so it really seems like those patients would uh, benefit the most from them. Um, what we're doing with ACT4 currently is we're actually comparing remdesivir and dexamethasone to remdesivir and baricitinib to see if baricitinib has an advantage, both in terms of efficacy and then also safety um, 
And so once we have the Act 4 results, there may be a bigger role for Barisitinib going forward. Yeah, because it would certainly be nice to uh, not have to have those diabetics on dexamethasone <laughs> for all those days. And then we're seeing, you know, those fungal infections too. We're That's seeing, right. Uh, aspergillosis in some of those ventilated patients. So for baricitinib, uh, not for patients just on uh, nasal O2 or Benny mask, but for those on high flow and non-invasive uh, ventilation, but uh, not for those on mechanical ventilation. Yes, yeah, so not for folks on mechanical ventilation, just because based on the recovery trial, the use of dexamethasone in those people clearly has a mortality benefit. Um, it, again, in the subgroup analysis, uh, baricitinib did, did seem to have a mortality benefit in those ordinal seven vented patients, but again, it was not nearly as robust as in the ordinal six folks. Um, in the ordinal five folks, those are the folks who are just on venti mass supplemental nasal oxygen via nasal cannula. You could consider baricitinib, but really at this point, only if they have a contraindication to dexamethasone. Uh, at least that's how both the NIH and the IDSA guidelines are, are written. Okay, so a pretty narrow role, but a defined role, and it did show some benefit in that defined group of patients. So. Exactly. It's definitely one to watch. Again, a lot of this depends on the results of the ACT-4 study, which uh, is, we're still in the process of uh, recruitment for that. Um, so it may have more of a role based on uh, what we find in the ACT-4 clinical trial. But again, for right now, just based on the limitations of the study design, um, it, its role is relatively narrow. Okay. And then, um, what seems after a lot of negative studies, there was a recent <laughs> positive study with tocilizumab. So what are we should, to think of this and how should we use TOSI now? Yes, the tocilizumab story certainly is interesting. Um, there have actually been uh, two positive studies now. So REMAP-CAP, which uh, the initial data was released uh, in January, and then the recovery trial has also uh, released data suggesting that tocilizumab is, is beneficial as well. So we now have two studies which seem to uh, you know, demonstrate benefit after, I think, sec seven negative trials <laughs> at the beginning of the study. Um, I guess the question is, what's changed? What was different about the remap cap and recovery studies compared to the earlier studies? Um, I think a couple things. Uh, one, uh, the tocilizumab had started very early on, shortly after hospital presentation. So in the case of REMAP-CAP, which is looking primarily at um, critically ill patients, they started it within 24 hours of requiring uh, organ support, whether that's vasopressor support because of hypotension or uh, invasive mechanical ventilation due to hypoxemic respiratory failure. Um, so that was certainly, it's probably one of the aspects of it. Um, recovery, most of the patients were started uh, within two days of hospital admission. So if you're gonna do it, you should definitely do it early on. Um, the other thing is that now tocilizumab is being used in combination with dexamethasone. So there's some thought that potentially by itself as an IL-6 blocker, it's uh, too narrow in terms of its spectrum, but uh, when added to dexamethasone or some other corticosteroid, it has a more pronounced effect. Um, so those seem to be the factors that have changed between the 
initial studies and then these two studies that are positive. Um, granted, both REMET-CAP and recovery have limitations in terms of their trial design, but you know, I think very, very promising data and some um, you know, basis in the molecular biology and, and pathophysiology that we know about COVID. Okay, so uh, it can be helpful in some circumstances now. I guess it's an another option in the toolbox, but not for everybody. Not for everybody. At, at this point, it's still a pretty uh, narrow recommendation from both the IDSA and the NIH. So it's folks who are in that um, ordinal six category on high flow nasal cannula or on BiPAP who are rapidly getting worse or who have and who have evidence of hyperinflammation based on a very high CRP over 75 or in folks who are uh, within 24 hours of admission to the, to the ICU and again, have evidence of hyperinflammation. Um, you know, this, this may change, um, but right now, I think it's probably appropriate to keep the indications relatively narrow. One of the things that I think everybody's concerned about is that when we see this decompensation in the ordinal six folks, or we have folks who are now vented, but who are presenting relatively late from symptom onset, secondary infection may be a part of, of why they're getting worse and why they're decompensating. And you know, throwing tocilizumab willy-nilly at those people potentially may make things a little bit worse. So again, narrow role at this point, and you have to really use your clinical judgment and be certain there isn't some secondary infection that that's driving uh, what you're seeing in terms of patient deterioration. Okay, good. All right. And we talked a little bit about outpatient management, uh, which is really lagged behind in terms of, uh, of what we've done with inpatient management studies in part because of the difficulty with preventing infection in the outpatient setting. But there have been some innovative contactless trials that have been done now. Um, and this type of trial may be very helpful to us in the future for studying future respiratory pathogens. And as you mentioned, fluvoxamine, an antidepressant of all things, is one of those agents studied in a contactless phase two trial and now undergoing a phase three trial. So do you think this looks promising and how would an antidepressant be useful in treating COVID? I, I do definitely think it's promising. Um, again, it has to be validated in a large phase three trial, but uh, the, the initial studies are very, very promising indeed. So the story of how uh, fluvoxamine got repurposed as a COVID agent is kind of interesting. Um, in the psychiatry world, I guess they had known that it had this off-target anti-inflammatory effect. So fluvoxamine um, is an agonist of a receptor on the endoplasmic reticulum called uh, sigma-1. And um, the agonism kind of stimulating that receptor decreases the production of inflammatory cytokines. And the psychiatrists knew about this. And some of the psychiatrists at WashU, where they had done a lot of the basic science research, approached the ID and the clinical folks and said, hey, this is a well-tolerated, very cheap medication that 
potentially can modulate the inflammatory response. Why don't you, why don't you try it? And um, based on the fact that it's, you know, maybe $8 for the entire course and has a pretty benign side effect profile, they went ahead and did a small randomized control trial, which did show evidence of benefit. Um, after the trial, there was also um, a prospective observational cohort. There was an outbreak at a horse racing track facility in Northern California. Um, half of the patients who uh, were part of that outbreak elected to start the fluvoxamine, whereas uh, about the other half, about 45 people did not. And what they saw were no hospitalizations and no hypoxemia in the group who elected to undergo treatment, whereas uh, several people, I think 12 out of the 45, uh, ended up uh, developing hypoxemia or being hospitalized if they didn't take the fluvoxamine. Um, so again, thus far, some interesting data, but again, we need a large phase three trial in order to uh, say for certain. Um, they are doing this contactless uh, phase three clinical trial. If you know somebody or you yourself get diagnosed with COVID and you're within a week of diagnosis, um, you can actually go to their, their website. Um, it's stopcovidtrial.com and enroll yourself in the clinical study. They mail the medications to you and then you report your, your outcome to them. So I think potentially very promising. And again, a new innovative trial design that we can potentially use going forward. Yes, that is very, uh, is, it is very interesting. And like you said, a surprising finding. And it emphasizes to us, I think, just the, uh, how, how complicated and important the inflammatory component of this disease is. So uh, we'll be looking forward to those uh, uh, phase three trial results as they come out. And then uh, in terms of other outpatient therapy, we've heard about some preliminary studies of an oral antiviral drug, monopiravir, uh, what can we expect from this? The antivirals have been kind of disappointing so far. What do you think about the drug? <laughs> so uh, molnupiravir, uh, formerly called uh, EIDD-2801 or MK-4482. <laughs> um, one, I think the development of this antiviral agent is very, very interesting. Um, there's a New York Times articles detailing kind of the convoluted process that it went through from a publicly funded pre-investigational agent to something that's now being developed by uh, large uh, uh, pharma companies. So anyway, I think that's interesting in of itself. Um, Molnupiravir, um, like remdesivir, is a, a pro-drug um, nucleoside analog. Um, so it gets, uh, in, it, in the cell, it gets turned into um, N-hydroxycytidine, and this blocks up the RNA proliminate, uh, polymerase. Um, unlike remdesivir, it's an oral agent, so it's a pill formulation, and it seems to have an even more pronounced antiviral effect, even compared to uh, remdesivir. Um, definitely much more potent than some of the other um, antiviral agents that were studied in the, the uh, outpatient setting, like um, umefinavir and then uh, favipiravir. Um, Anyway, they recently released some of the data from their phase two studies, which showed that it halved the time for viral clearance. So again, more of a virologic out outcome as opposed to a clinical outcome, but again, certainly very impressive. I think like most of the antiviral therapies, 
we're probably going to need to start it early, you know, as soon as possible after diagnosis, potentially within the first week, because um, after that, it seems more and more like the pathogenesis is driven by hyperinflammation. Okay, that, that's a good point. So um, looks good from a virological outcome at this point, still waiting for clinical outcome data. And uh, no doubt it would have to be started early uh, to be effective uh, as an antiviral. Um, so, um, and there's been some other drugs we've been hopeful, uh, some repurposed drugs like uh, ivermectin. Uh, there was a, you know, a, a study fairly early on in hospitalized patients, observational study that looked a little promising. Uh, what's, what's new about ivermectin? Can we still be hopeful about that? I am not so sure about that. Um... You know, ivermectin in multiple small clinical trials, um, primarily in inpatients, but some outpatients did seem promising. Um, all of those trials, again, were small. They had methodologic issue. Um, they, many of them were not randomized. Many of them were not uh, blinded studies. So, you know, a lot of possibility of bias. But anyway, those initial studies showed some evidence of benefit. But more recently, I think within the past couple of weeks, there's been a larger clinical trial that was conducted in Columbia uh, in patients who were hospitalized with mild, moderate disease. And unfortunately, in that clinical trial, which had 200 people in the intervention arm, 200 people in the placebo arm, there was no evidence of benefit to ivermectin. Again, there are, I think, five other larger clinical trials ongoing uh, looking at the potential benefit in hospitalized folks and outpatient folks. But I think when you look at the trial, this most recent trial, which has the most methodologic rigor and it certainly has the largest sample size, um, ivermectin may not be quite as promising as we hoped. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see what those other trials show, uh, but we may be disappointed with, with ivermectin like we were with hydro hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, well, um, we have indeed learned a lot in the past year about treating COVID. Uh, one of the most important things, as Dr. Ponce mentioned, is the timing of the agents matching the viral phase of the infection with antivirals and the inflammatory phase with the anti-inflammatories. Uh, and there's kind of a narrow niche for some of the newly studied agents like ferrocitinib and tocilizumab. So uh, we have to uh, look at the patient and the criteria and match those carefully. Uh, and then at the same time, watch for complications from the anti-inflammatories, uh, such as serious fungal infections uh, and other types of infections. So we've, it's been a year and we've learned a lot. I'm, still, I'm sure we still have a lot to learn from COVID. Uh, Dr. Ponce, thank you for joining us today. Thanks again for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. See you.